and touch our hearts, touch our minds. Let the fallow grounds of our heart be broken up, ready to receive the word. Your word is fruitful into all things, Lord, and we want to bear much fruit for you. Cut away what doesn't belong in us and prune us that there may be new growth in us, Jesus. Help us to be washed by water with this word tonight, where we need to be washed, where we need to be cut, cut away. In Jesus' name, thank you for this privilege to be here and to minister to your people. Help me to do it with a right heart, with a right spirit, and with a right attitude. We ask in the name of Jesus, and everybody say amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We will start with one verse, but I promise you we will cover many others. Uh, Galatians 2 and 16 is where we will begin. This is deeper life. Again, I'm, I'm condensing weeks 3 and 4 so that we can have TCYC next month, and, and, we'll, and we'll be full, I hope, on the Word of God ready. Amen. So Galatians 2 and 16 is what it says. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Knowing that a man is not, everybody say not. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. So again, these are two different weeks that we're bringing together. Typically, week three, we will talk about legalism. Week four is liberty, Christian liberty specifically. And so tonight we're merging them. It's going to be legalism and liberty. But the two go hand in hand. Amen. So whenever someone teaches about holiness, practical holiness, it's often, this person is often accused of legalism. And we'll discuss what that is. And indeed, one can drift into legalism and do more harm than good. Tonight, we're going to address several key questions in regards to legalism. Who's heard that word before? So if you've not heard that word before, now you have, and we're going to talk about what legalism is. We're going to talk about what's wrong with legalism. We're going to find out if there are biblical alternatives to legalism. And we'll also discuss if it's possible to teach practical holiness while avoiding legalism. And if so, how is it done? So let's define legalism, shall we? Legalism means strict or excessive conformity to a legal code or set of rules. Strict or excessive conformity to a legal code or a set of rules. So as it relates to us in a Christian context, legalism has two negative connotations. Basing salvation on the performance of good works or on the strict observance of laws or otherwise rules and regulations. Number two, legalism is imposing rules on self and others that are not based on clear biblical teachings or principles. Legalism teaches salvation by relying upon one's works instead of God's grace. And the legalist will attempt to rely on his own human efforts instead of the power of the Holy Ghost. So what this leads to is pride, self-righteousness, and self-deception because really what the legalist begins to think is he is saving himself. On another hand, it leads to frustration, to a lack of assurance of salvation, fear, despair, and backsliding when the legalist realizes his inability to manufacture his own righteousness. And he cannot live by the strict observance or adherence to rules. So the Bible does, however, stress the importance of good works as the inevitable, excuse me, the inevitable results of saving grace and saving faith. Ephesians, Titus, and James all teach that we are not saved by good works, but we are indeed saved unto good works. If your life has not gotten better since you've been saved, there might be something wrong. If your walk with God hasn't gotten closer since you were saved, you might need to examine some things. You're not going to save yourself by those works, but there should be some fruit. Amen. So genuine faith that's working in the life of a believer should indeed produce good works. So you've heard this before. We do not get good to get God, but we get God to get good. And we don't work towards salvation. Let me, let me, let me kind of draw you 
a timeline here. Let's say salvation is right here in the middle in a lot of people's minds. And you're, you're working from this point back here trying to get to salvation. Like that's the finish. If I could do X, Y, and Z, I can be saved. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that salvation is the very, very beginning that you start here and you work from that point forward. So we don't work towards salvation. We all work from salvation. That your, your born again experience, being born of water and of the spirit is the entrance into the kingdom. Amen. It's not the finish line in the kingdom. And then we do not live holy in order to earn salvation. But we live holy because we have salvation. Legalism is insufficient motivation to live for God. It will not bring salvation, nor will it produce true holiness. This is what legalism does. Legalism sidesteps grace, faith, and the work of the Holy Ghost. It tries to produce holiness by human efforts alone to purchase salvation that that man-made holiness redeemed for you. So in essence, again, that person that tries to live that kind of a lifestyle and that mentality is thereby trying to save themselves. Can't do it. It places utmost importance upon an outward show of holiness while neglecting and ignoring the development of genuine inward holiness. Which when you get the inside right, the outside will line up. And so that, that is what happens when you do it on the inside, it begins to show on the outside. So Jesus, Jesus himself opposed Jewish legalism of his day, and particularly that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the Jewish religious leaders of his day, and they believed that salvation rested strict in strict conformity to the law of Moses and then the oral traditions that they had built around it. And Jesus rebuked their self-righteous attitude, the hypocrisy that accompanied it, and the man-made traditions that actually subverted the word of God. This is what he said in Luke 18, 10 through 14. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. See, the IRS has always had a bad rep. They can be saved. They need to pray through, but they can be saved. The Pharisee, the self-righteous man, stood and he prayed like this. He said, God, and I, and I, I don't know about you, but when I read, I kind of picture things. And so I picture this Pharisee standing there just looking up to heaven with a big grin on his face with his self-righteousness, saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner right here. In essence, that's what he's saying. He says, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. Or even like this here, tax collector. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And that humble tax collector stood there, standing afar off. Wouldn't even so much as raise his eyes to heaven. He said that he stood there. Eat his bread. And say, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I feel a witness of the Holy Ghost. That we know which one left in a good state with God. Amen. We know that Jesus went on to say this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. But I feel a witness in the Holy Ghost that God doesn't like self-righteousness. That tack, that 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 Pharisee and that scribe that'll say, God, I thank you that I'm, I'm not as bad as other people. And I, 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 I fast, I pray, I do this, I do that. I never make mistakes. I'm, that's essentially what this guy said. And what did he say? He went away condemned. But this, this tax collector that stood there wouldn't even lift up his eyes because he's so ashamed. Said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. I'm going to say that again because it's a biblical principle. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. 
and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus rebuked them for a failure to develop inward holiness and for their hypocritical, inconsistent conduct. Listen to what Matthew 23 says. Jesus says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done and not to leave the other undone. You blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. As strong. We can easily see that the Pharisees' failure to develop a mature understanding of principles by their attitude towards the Sabbath. They were so zealous to keep the Sabbath, they condemned Jesus for healing the sick on the Sabbath. They failed to realize that God created the Sabbath for man and not man for the Sabbath. The example shows how the Pharisees took valid teachings from God's word and applied them inappropriately or stretched them far beyond what the original teaching was intended for. In this case, they actually used one of the Ten Commandments to criticize Jesus for healing people on the Sabbath. So in Exodus, it says basically that on Sunday, right, God rested on the Sabbath, which we, we observe on Sunday, but it, it's Friday evening to Saturday evening. That's the Sabbath. That's the seventh day. But we, we teach, the Bible teaches, that God rested, right? He rested from all of his works. And so they were to collect two days worth of manna the last day that they collected it, right? So they would have one day where they didn't have to do any work. They weren't supposed to walk. They weren't supposed to work. It was supposed to be a day of what? Rest. So what legalism does is it determines how, just how far I can walk on a Sabbath and it not violate the law. So you tell me, how far would that be? I don't know. I probably think it would depend on your condition yourself before you begin to perspire, break a sweat, or get tired. But they determined it was about 2,000 cubits, about five-eighths of a mile, because they determined that's how far you could walk on a Sabbath and not violate law. Talk about legalism. So despite their show of holiness, the scribes and Pharisees observed only a minimum of moral law. Their main purpose was to be seen of men not to please God. Matthew 23, 5 through 7, and then verse 14 says, But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for, pre for pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Jesus said of the Pharisees, For they bind heavy burdens, grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he's made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. They would go out of their way to make a disciple. And when they've made that disciple, he's way worse than they were. And what he's saying is you don't let anybody get into the kingdom because you're standing in the way. The legalist of today is much like the scribe and Pharisee of Jesus' day. They may seem to be holy, but in the sight of God, he's lacking. Even though the legalist may be very strict in holiness teaching, he actually fails to develop true holiness in his life. 
Paul pointed out that conformity to external law never meant anything unless the heart was right. According to Romans 2, 17 through 29. Furthermore, the law of Moses could not, and everybody say it wasn't supposed to. It could not and was not intended to impart salvation on works. The Bible teaches us that the law was a schoolmaster. The Greek word for schoolmaster is pedagogue. What that is, is if you picture, you know, they all live kind of communally in different villages and towns. And so there would be this man that would go and say, okay, Trevor, come on, let's get our friends together. And today the teacher's teaching over here. And so we're going to come over here. Come on, come on. Okay, class, here's your teacher. That was a schoolmaster. They brought him to Christ. That's what the law did, brought us from where we were to where the teacher was. As a schoolmaster to bring us to him. Wasn't meant to be him. Wasn't meant to do what he did, but just to get you to him. It was meant to teach man several truths. Number one, the law was to point out to us our sinfulness. It was to point out to us God's righteousness. And it was also intended to show us that we need salvation. And then also, lastly, it was to show us that we couldn't save ourselves. And so Paul strongly opposed legalism in general, but these Judaizers in particular. He taught that we are justified by faith, not by observance of the law of Moses. He taught that we are saved by grace through faith and not by good works. The gospel of Christ has liberated us from the need to observe the ordinances of the Jewish law. In fact, if we persist in seeking righteousness by the works of the law, the Bible says that we frustrate the grace of God and we make Christ's death vain. Because if the law could save you, what was the point of the cross? Specifically, Christ's death abolished the Jewish ceremonial law with its unclean foods and drinks. Thank God, because I like bacon. The special feast days, festival days, and Sabbaths. So this kind of legalism may superficially seem to be wise and holy, but it has no power to restrain the lusts of the sinful nature. It tells you what to do, but doesn't help you do it. This is what Paul said in Colossians. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments in doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So what are improper alternatives to legalism? Many people, they see the dangers of legalism, and so they reject it. They shun it. But in the process, they sometimes discard practical holiness altogether. Frequently, what happens is this. One generation is going to discover that there is a life-changing relationship in God, and they embrace scriptural holiness. They rearrange their entire lifestyle. They put some things out. They take some things in. They decide, I'm going to come out from among them. I'm going to be separate. I'm no longer going to do what I used to do, but I'm going to live a new way. And so they rearrange everything. Rightly, amen? They rearrange their entire lifestyle around concepts of separation from the world, being dedicated to God. And then they pass this newfound lifestyle to their offspring, to the next generation. Well, somewhere in the process of this transmission to future generations, whether it's child, grandchild, great-grandchild, so on and so forth, what happens is this becomes kind of legalistic in its tendencies, and these tendencies begin to creep in. And so what began for that initial person as joyous submission to the will of God becomes this codified set of just rules and regulations, which are then justified on the basis of tradition and ritual. So finally, that generation sees that it's cold and dry 
and begins to rebel. And they begin to question the values. They question the why. And what's the validity of this? And sometimes they fail to realize that many good and precious truths have been handed down to them, albeit in the wrong way. They've been taught many right things, but for wrong reason or without reason altogether. Because I said so is not a reason. Amen. My philosophy with our kids is I'll give them instruction and I'll give them two or three whys. Because if you don't do this, then this happens. I really try to tell them the cause and effect of why. But it gets to a point where now you're just asking questions for the sake of not doing what I've told you to do. Now it's just do it. Just because I said so. Amen. But with God, the answers are really here. Ultimately, you can find any answer here to why. But ultimately, with God, it is because he said so. He's God and we're not. It's for our good, Brother Trevor. Amen. So, in one case, that's like this. When they, did I miss two blanks for y'all? I want to make sure I got them because, yeah, thank you. Because I, I don't like blanks. When they rightfully reject legalism, they discard true holiness principles and valid practical applications. So when, when this happens, there's actually two parts to blame. The preceding generations to blame because they made the truth vulnerable by their non-biblical approach to teaching it, or not teaching it, rather. On the other hand, the new generations to blame for not studying these issues prayerfully and for not developing a genuine love for the truth at all costs. They see legalistic tendencies that they rightfully reject, but they use the occasion as an excuse to disregard any holiness lifestyle convictions and to indulge in the desires of the flesh. The root problem on both sides is a failure to commit quality time in serious, prayerful study of God's word. So many suppose that the answer to legalism is antinomianism. Basically, that means no law. Or they think that license, which means freedom without any kind of responsibility. Or they think libertinism, which means no moral restraints and rejection of religious or other moral authority. They think that those are the proper alternatives. But they, so they insist that they can have inward holiness without any guidelines as to outward appearance and conduct. This attitude totally contradicts the word of God. True holiness is not freedom to act and look like the world, but it's freedom from conformity to the world. I'm going to say that again. True holiness is not freedom to act and look like the world, but freedom from conformity to the world. The importance of moral law. Let me, let me stop for a minute. And there's three different kinds of law. There's ceremonial law, there's moral law, and there's civil law. Ceremonial law we discussed, it's the feasts, it's the Sabbaths, it's the new moons, it's the holy days. Okay, that's the ceremonial law. Moral law, don't kill, don't lie, don't cheat, don't defraud. Morals, think about just moral, right? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always been moral, will always be moral, right? In him, there is no unrighteousness, right? There's, so what that means is his morality never changes. Therefore, moral law never changes. What, it, what he expected of Adam and Eve's character, he expects of his children today, okay? But then civil law, that's the laws that govern the nation and the state and the municipalities that we live in. We've got to obey those, right? The Bible tells us, obey those laws, okay? So ceremonial law, when Paul wrote, that he, he took the, the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us. He took them and nailed them to the cross. Well, so what are the ordinances that were against us? So because he didn't take the, he didn't take the law per se, Brother Trevor, and nail the law to the cross, he fulfilled the law. We'll discuss that in a little bit. He fulfilled the law. But what he did was he took the penalty for your disobeying the law and nailed it to the cross. Whew. He took your penalty the handwriting and the ordinances that were against us were nailed to that cross. Man, somebody lift your hands and thank him for that. 
that he endured your pain, he endured your shame, he took your penalty, that you and I were all born in sin and all shaping in iniquity, and we all deserve the death of that rugged cross. But he not only took the penalty for the law, but he took the sin and he drank it. God, I thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love, Jesus. Man. Never lose sight of that. So moral law is important. We can never stop proclaiming that legalism will never bring about true holiness, but we must never do away with or shortchange God's moral law or the necessity of obedience to the word of God. God has always had a law. And if you don't believe me, read Genesis. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they had a law. There was a law. There was one law, and we couldn't keep it. So we lost the garden. Amen. But there was always a law. God had a law. Don't eat of that fruit, of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the law. Always had a law. He always has had specific commands that men must obey. Again, even in the age of innocence, in the Garden of Eden, there was one very specific prohibition. And as I mentioned, God's moral nature never changes, therefore, neither does his moral law. But what he has done is he has progressively revealed more of his moral law from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And Jesus himself told us, that the law or commandments would continue to exist in the New Testament church. This is what he said in John 14 and 15. He said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. And he commissioned his disciples to teach all converts what? All things whatsoever I have what? Commanded you. We have commandments to obey. Matthew 5 and 17, this is what he said. He says, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill. And the better translation of that fulfill is, I didn't come to destroy it, but I came to fill it with meaning. I came to show you what it looked like to live according to the law and to give you a demonstration of what it, lived, what it looked like to live an overcoming life. So he never rejected the law, did he? His only rejection of it was when he rejected it as a mediator and as a source of justification. When Jesus opposed the Jewish legalism of his day, he indicated that true holiness would be even more demanding spiritually. Matthew 5.20 says, For I say unto you, now think about that Pharisee, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Sounds important. He recognized that in most cases, the Pharisees taught correct doctrine. He did not reject their teachings as much as he rejected their attitude and their inconsistent conduct. This is what he told the people in Matthew 23, 2 through 3. He says, saying the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. What was Moses' seat? Think about who got the law. And then Moses sat there as a judge, judging all of the people. They came to him all day, rightly trying to judge. Hey, Moses, my, my friend did this. Well, you need to do this. You need to do this. Don't do that. And then what happened? Well, he appointed, what, a 70. And it is commonly taught and thought that these Pharisees were descendants of that 70. So they sit in Moses' seat with the law. And so this is what Jesus said. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But there's a caveat. He says, but don't do ye after their works, for they say and do not. You ever tell your kids, don't do what I do, do what I say? Don't do that, because they're going to do what you do. But Jesus is saying, don't do what they do. What they're telling you to do is right, and you should do it. But don't act like them. Don't be self-righteous like them. The Pharisees were such sticklers for the law that they paid tithes even on small herbs which grew in their gardens. Jesus rebuked them for their attention to detail while ignoring more important things spiritually. Some today would say such attention to petty detail doesn't matter, but it only matters what motives and intentions be pure. However, Jesus did not rebuke the scrupulous tithe paying, but in fact he commended it. 
he endorsed obedience to God's word in both the seemingly insignificant details and in the larger principles. And as we've seen, Paul rejected ritualistic laws that forbade Christians to touch, to taste, or handle regarding um, ceremonially unclean foods and things. Some today will use that teaching to reject all moral guidelines and all restraints on worldly conduct. However, Paul wrote this, touch not the unclean thing. So that means for you and me, there are still things that are unclean that we shouldn't touch. There are places that are fairly evil that we should not attend or we should not go to. There are places you shouldn't allow your eyes to go or your ears to go, your body to go, your imagination to go. That's the unclean thing. Paul said, don't touch it. It's kind of like Adam and Eve. Adam said, don't touch it. God told him, don't eat it. Paul says, don't even touch it because if you don't touch it, you're not going to participate in it. Christians today should still abstain from immoral, ungodly, and worldly things. The ceremonial law has been abolished, but there are still many activities in this world that Christians must avoid as morally or spiritually unclean, that we still do in fact have commandments to obey. The Christian life is like a game with spiritual rules to obey. This is what Paul said, if anyone competes in athletics... He is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Don't disqualify yourself from eternal life by not playing the game according to the rules. My moral law is a restraining force, but the sinful nature needs a restraint upon its desires. While the spiritual man needs protection against evil, holiness teachings do not curb freedom in Jesus Christ. They preserve it. Part two, let's talk about liberty. Brother Trevor, will you read loud for me Galatians 5 and 13? For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Thank you. Biblical Christianity is not a life of drudgery, but a life of liberty. It's a life of liberty. Unfortunately, some people use this concept to justify their rejection of practical holiness teachings. Some discard many important aspects of moral law under this guise. The rejection of legalism does not nullify moral law. Just because you reject legalism doesn't mean you're basically free to live morally. Nor does it justify a life with no moral restraint and a rejection of religious or other moral authority. Neither does Christian liberty eliminate the need for personal holiness. So picture holiness like a fence that you put around your yard or around your garden. The fence doesn't curb the garden's freedom. The garden is still free to grow, still free to produce, right? But what the fence does is keep critters from coming into your garden and destroying it. That's what holiness does. Holiness allows this garden to grow like it should and to produce fruit. But it keeps things that external threats from coming in and destroying the garden. We need a fence. Everybody say freedom from sin. First and foremost, Christian liberty means that we are no longer under bondage to sin. And everybody let out a collective amen. amen. Before our conversion, B.C. If you wonder what B.C. means, that's really what it means, before conversion. No, I'm just, that's not what it means. B.C. Before conversion, we were, we were bound, Amen. We were at the mercy of the sinful nature, and you literally you ever heard somebody do something wrong and they say, I couldn't help it? They mean it, and they're right. You could not help but sin when you were bound to the sinful nature. You were a slave to sin. You could not help but sin. And what would happen is, is you would focus your efforts on 
completely annihilating sin in one area. And what happens is you end up playing kind of like spiritual whack-a-mole. Like, boom, I got it here. But it pops up over here. And you got to take that mallet and whack it on that side. And then every time you do it, it just pops up somewhere else. And you're constantly just trying to whack this thing and knock it out and eliminate it. But you can't because you're a slave to it. Amen? So it's like it would just reassert its position of authority in just another area that you thought maybe you'd conquered before. So, but now through the Holy Ghost, we have power over sin, and you literally can choose to sin or not to sin. Now you can help it. If we abuse our liberty and choose to live in sin again, what happens? You surrender your freedom. This is what Romans 6, 14 through 20, and then verse 22 says, For sin shall not, everybody say not, not. sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? You're not under the law, but under grace. And Paul asks a rhetorical question. What then? Shall we sin? Because we're not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. But now, being made free from sin... Become the servants to God. You have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Christian liberty does not mean that we are free to do whatever we want without a regard to the will of God. To be freed from sin automatically means submission to the will of God. You're either a servant to sin or you're free to sin. But if you're free from sin, then you're a servant to God. Amen? So to be freed from sin, I'm going to repeat that, automatically means submission to the will of God. By definition, to exercise Christian liberty means to break free from sin's bondage, to observe, to obey, and serve God, which in turn means to serve righteousness unto holiness and to bear fruit unto holiness. And our liberty also means that we are now free from the law. Christian liberty does not mean that moral law has been abolished. Rather, it means that we have been freed from the law of the Old Testament in at least four specific ways. Number one, we are freed from the penalty and the condemnation of the law. The law condemned us to death, but when we apply Christ's atonement to our lives, we are pardoned. Galatians 3 and 13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Second, we are freed from the attempt to fulfill the law through our own human effort. Of course, God never meant for the law to bring righteousness in itself. Salvation has always been by works. Has never been by works, rather, but always by grace through faith. Both before and during the law. God gave the law to define sin, to prove man's utter sinfulness, to prove man's need of God's grace, and to point us to Christ. In order to fulfill these purposes, God subjected the man to the law, even though man did not have the power to fulfill the law. God's people were actually under bondage to the law, and just as a child is treated like a servant under tutors and governors until it reaches maturity. Godly people in the Old Testament did not have the power of the Holy Ghost available to them to overcome sin on a daily basis. So they were never able to live up to the law because they had to rely on weak, sinful flesh. They were saved by faith expressed in obedience to God's plan for that day. They attempted to fulfill the law and offered sacrifices continually to atone for their failures. The gospel of Christ has delivered us from this bondage to the law. By faith in Christ, here's what we get. We receive the righteousness of Christ without the deeds of the law. 
Aren't you glad you didn't have to bring your lamb here tonight? And through the Holy Ghost, we can fulfill all righteousness that the law demanded but could not impart. God counts us righteous, which means he justifies us through faith in Christ and progressively makes us righteous or he sanctifies us as we submit to and cooperate with his indwelling law. Right? What does he say? Not on tables of stone, but on the fleshy table of the heart will I write my law. Now, when you study the giving of the law at Sinai, so Moses is up on the mountain, and he gets the law, he gets the commandments, and he comes down. And that's really part of the celebration of Pentecost is the giving of the law. And so when they were going to Jerusalem to celebrate the giving of the law, they're celebrating the Feast of Weeks, and they're all coming together for that feast to celebrate and they're gathered together in an upper room, and we know what happened. They're saying, came a sound from heaven like as of a rushing mighty wind, and cloven tongues like as of a fire sat upon each of them. Well, what happened? When God poured out the Holy Ghost, Brother Trevor, you didn't just speak in tongues. What he did was he wrote his law upon your heart, but then he gave you the material to obey what he just wrote. That is the fulfillment. That is the fullest meaning of Pentecost. But what happens? We have to cooperate. Amen? We have to cooperate with that law that he just put inside of us. And allow him to fully regenerate us. Romans 7, 4 through 6 says, So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature... The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Romans 8, 1 and 4 says, There is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. But then you walk after the spirit, but not the flesh, right? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and death. Hmm. Because why? Because the law could not do it. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Then Galatians 5 and 18 says, but if you be led of the spirit, you're no longer under the law. Third, we are freed from the destructive power the law caused by man's abuse of it. Many Jews falsely believed they could obtain righteousness merely by the works of the law. And this was a gross distortion of God's original purpose for giving the law. Because the law, which was good in itself, actually became a harmful force because they relied on it for salvation and rejected Christ. Lewis Meads explains the problem very well. He says, when the law came, the flesh made the law an instrument of self-righteousness. The law became part of a religious system which fostered man's sense of self-sufficiency. It became party to man's monstrous delusion. This was the Judaic religious system that Paul recognized as the enemy of Christ. The law had been turned inside out. Rather than a witness to man's need of being saved, it had become a technique to save oneself. The inner meaning of the law had been forgotten, that the law had now teemed with the flesh, and when it teems with the flesh, it produces sin. And we all know that sin ends in death. Smeeds also summarized the true meaning of Christian liberty. He said, clearly, 
Freedom in Christ does not retire us from obedience to the moral law. It changes our way of looking at the law. Once, in our stupidity, we thought that with the help of the law we could conquer the moral life. But we are weak and the law was unable to protect us. But Christ created a new alliance, thank God. Now we are under him as Lord with his spirit enabling us to fulfill the just requirements of the law. So he concluded that the law teaches submission to Christ and obedience to the leading of the spirit. In short, we have been liberated from the condemnation of the law so that now we can freely serve in the spirit. Romans 7 and 6 says, but now we are delivered from the law. That being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. And finally, we are specifically freed from the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. And God used the ceremonial law, specifically the blood sacrifices, the dietary laws, circumcision, Sabbaths, and feasts, as a type and foreshadowing of the truth that's found in Christ and in the gospel. Again, I say the law was simply a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. In Colossians 2, 13 through 14, 16 and 17 says, When you were dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations, that's the ordinances that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with what regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day, that these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Our liberty, though, does not permit us to indulge in fleshly desires. It doesn't allow us to commit sin or to violate the word of God. Scripture provides other important guidelines for the proper exercise of Christian liberty, even with respect to non-moral matters. There are matters in life that are morally neutral. Not right, not wrong. These are areas where your conscience can tell you, I don't feel right doing this and you don't, but yet someone who's just as Holy Ghost filled as you can feel okay. Does that make sense? Kind of like eating McDonald's. You should not do it, but I'm just playing. Can I, can I share a funny story just real quick? So we, we never go to McDonald's. I mean, like, never. And Christmas, when the orchestra was practicing, I was going to take Amelia somewhere to eat. And a few weeks prior to that, it was just her and I, and I wanted something really close to our house. And so I, I broke my own rules, and I took her to McDonald's for a Happy Meal. And she loved it, of course. I mean, it's a Happy Meal. Who's not happy with a Happy Meal? There's something wrong with you. So, so she enjoyed it. She got the toy and everything in the, their little french fries that are coked with some kind of a distance, a, a addicting substance, I'm sure, something. So anyway, she really liked it. And well, that Sunday when they're practicing, she was hungry. I just wanted to take her somewhere quick. And, she's, and, I'm, and I'm asking her, Amelia, where do you want to go eat? And she just sits there and thinks for a minute. And she says, ah, the place with the yellow M. And I'm telling you, I'm like, What? Brother Gary, where are you? Do you remember, he's, you remember this? And I'm, I am really confounded. The place with the yellow M. And I'm running through my mind the places that we go that start with an M, and none of them have yellow. And I look at Brother Gary, and I said, Brother Gary, she wants to go to the place with a yellow M. And he looks at me like, like I'm playing. <laughs> and then a couple seconds later, he realizes, oh, you're serious. And I'm like, yes, the place with a yellow M. Where in the world is that? And he says, McDonald's. And I was like, Oh. So anyway, that girl got McDonald's again. But anyways, sorry, that was just a little rabbit trail. But if you like McDonald's, I forgive you. <laughs> I think, Bishop, you like it. Amen. You're in good company. Praise the Lord. So here's where we've got to be careful. Exercise of liberty should be to the glory of God. This is what Paul said in Corinthians, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. 
Number two, we should avoid anything detrimental to us, whether physically, mentally, or spiritually, even if it's not inherently sinful. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. Many commentators believe that Paul quoted an expression that the Corinthians used to justify questionable conduct, but then he commented upon it. But the New International Version, or the nearly inspired version, translate this verse like this. He says, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. We must regulate our activities so that none of them control us. We must not allow anything to dominate our will or rob us of too much energy, time, or money. We must not let anything interfere with our relationship with God. Number four, the Christian must never exercise liberty in a way that would harm others. I like to put it like this. We have rights. We have liberty in this nation. Everybody does. But Brother Trevor, my rights, my liberty stops when it begins to infringe upon yours. When my rights violate your rights, that's where I have no liberty anymore. Does that make sense? 1 Corinthians 8, 9 says, But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. 1 Corinthians 8, 13 says, Wherefore, if meat maketh my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. 1 Corinthians 10, 32 and 33 says, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, for why? That they may be saved. Romans 14, 15 through 17. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. Romans 14 and 20 says, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. Would everyone agree with me that this is a growing church? There are various levels of maturity across our congregation, and that ought to be so. I think I said this maybe in week one or week two, I can't remember. But that in a growing church, it's like a healthy family. There's going to be production of offspring. And when you've got production of offspring, there are going to be different levels of maturity. You're going to have some that are really mature in the Lord and some that are just barely learning to crawl. And so that's where it is. We are a growing church. And because we are a growing church, there are going to be different levels of maturity. That's always going to exist in a healthy church. And the concept of Christian liberty teaches us to be tolerant of the different personal convictions and preferences of other believers. But this, of course, applies only to situations not specifically covered by scriptural teachings. In no case can we compromise with sin. We must avoid the extreme of legalism on one hand and the other extreme of condoning ungodly and immoral practices on the other. And I thank God for a pastor that teaches biblical lifestyle convictions. And as a church, we must continue to teach against practices that the Bible opposes. If the Bible says it's wrong, it's always going to be wrong. It doesn't matter what the culture says. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. It doesn't matter what the state legislature says. It doesn't matter. What this says is right. Amen? We cannot compromise. But to do this effectively, we cannot merely parrot certain phrases, but must explain the Bible's teachings and apply them to contemporary situations. We must define clearly what it means to lie, to defraud, to dress immodestly, and so on. And, and, and I, I kind of was remiss to say this last time, so I'll say it here, that immodest dress or dressing modestly doesn't only mean you wear what pertains to your gender. Because you can wear what pertains to your gender, but still be immodest. It can still be too tight, too revealing. 
Amen? Just because it's gender appropriate doesn't mean it's appropriate. The writers of the New Testament epistles gave very specific instructions with respect to situations in their day. And as a church, we must continue to do the same thing today. In some cases, the Bible presents a general principle, but does not illustrate how the principle applies to culture today. When we try to apply biblical principles to modern situations, we must be careful not to claim the same authority for our particular application that exists for the principle itself. If we maintain that every conceivable deviation from our particular application is a sin, then we ourselves can fall into legalism. If we ever adopt the mindset of only doing the absolute minimum of what is taught by the church, that's also legalistic. Only a legalist would insist on doing the absolute minimum. A Christian with a true heart for God and his ways would rather be extra close to God than risk being too close to the world. And if we use a legalistic approach in teaching against certain practices, our rules will either be inconsistent or they'll be ridiculously harsh. We would risk alienating sincere people with unwarranted extremism. On the other hand, though, we can use a mature understanding of Christian liberty to approach holiness in a positive way. And the approach should be moderate, temperate, and rational without surrendering important practical teachings. And it will actually enhance what we teach and facilitate the acceptance of it. John Calvin observed that to some, Christian liberty is perversely interpreted as a cloak for their lust, and so they may licentiously abuse the good gifts of God. Grace is not licensed to sin. Grace is not licensed to sin. When you got a driver's license, you were permitted to drive, but there's still laws that you obey, or you get that license taken away, amen? We are not licensed to sin, but you are given grace. And so don't abuse the mercies of God. Don't abuse the gifts of God. Genuine spiritual freedom is not freedom to commit sin, but freedom from the bondage to sin. And ultimately, the Christian life is characterized by liberty, which means freedom to do God's will and to obey his word. When we implement the concept of Christian liberty, we find that it doesn't detract from, but it enhances holiness teaching. It is the biblical alternative to legalism. If you would, let's go ahead and stand. True Christian liberty will lead to a life of greater holiness because it enables us to voluntarily submit to the will of God. When you didn't have the Holy Ghost, Brother Trevor, there was nothing you could do to please God. But now that you've got the Holy Ghost, you ought to give everything you can to please God. So we've been liberated from the bondage of sin and the law, but now by the help of the Holy Ghost, we should choose to obey the word of God. Amen? We shouldn't use our liberty to cause others to stumble. We shouldn't use our liberty as a, as a reason to sin, permit sin, continue in sin. Amen? He freed you from the law. He freed you from sin. Therefore, we should walk in the liberty that his death purchased. Amen? Somebody lift your hands and thank him for that liberty. Thank him for the Holy Ghost. Thank him for the blood that was shed at Calvary. Thank you for liberating us from the bondage of sin, Lord. Thank you for freeing us by the gift of the Holy Ghost. Thank you for taking our place on a rugged cross. Thank you for redeeming us from that curse, Jesus. Hallelujah. If you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, tonight would be a great night to have it done. If you've never been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, tonight's your night. The Bible says that except a man is born again of water and of spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name.
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you for that law of liberty, Lord. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Ghost that was shed abroad in our hearts. And Lord, when you put the Holy Ghost in us, you gave us your commandments and you empowered us to fulfill the law. Lord, thank you, Jesus. Lord, liberate every yoke in this place, every yoke to bondage, every yoke to the world, every yoke to sin. Let it be broken by the anointing, Jesus. Liberate and loose from the bondage to sin and the corruption of this world, Lord. Let us not seek to please man, but let us seek to please you in all things, Jesus. Let us walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lusts of this flesh, Jesus. Hallelujah. Let us walk in the liberty that you've purchased for us, Lord. Hallelujah. Let us not become yoked again to this world nor its bondage, Lord, but help us to continue to walk in the liberty and the power and the freedom of your spirit. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I bless your name. I bless your name, Jesus. Praise God.